0: Our message this morning is entitled, What Next? What Next? And will be the continuation and conclusion of the little mini-series that we've presented to you over the last three weeks, this week being the last of those three. As we've studied this concept together over the last three weeks, this little series that we've undertaken, we have focused our attention, as is fitting, on the crucifixion, The death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the first message in this series, which was on Palm Sunday, the Sunday that's named after on the calendar, the riding in of our Lord into Jerusalem on the colt, the foal of an ass, as they shout Hosanna, which, as you know, is from Psalm 118 Save us, we beseech thee. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And they put their clothing and palm leaves before Him. And because of that, that day on the calendar is referred to as Palm Sunday. In that message, we considered whether or not the Lord knew all the suffering that He would experience as He went into Jerusalem, all that would befall Him, being tried and beaten and scourged and mocked and ridiculed, made to carry His cross through a crowd of scorners, to be nailed to the tree, and being placed on the tree, He made atonement for our sins, the Father laying on Him, as it were, our iniquities, as our substitutionary Savior, our sacrifice. And of course, the answer to that question is absolutely Jesus knew everything that He would suffer. As he prayed the night before, he sweat as it were great drops of blood. He knew every bit of suffering he would experience, and yet he set his face as a flint. He endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. Last week, on Easter Sunday, we studied his resurrection, what that means to us as Christians, what it proved beyond a shadow of a doubt, the resurrection of Christ being a historic fact, It isn't something that is myth or fairy tale, but it's something that is an uncontestable historic fact that through the history of the world from the time of Christ since, people didn't try to say that Christ never even existed and that His crucifixion and resurrection was some sort of folklore, but their goal, unbelievers, was to try to explain it away that He fainted or His disciples stole the body and, as we know, the men who walked with Him and witnessed Him and proclaimed Him, They, many of them, concerning the apostles, all of them but John, went to their deaths proclaiming that He was risen. And as we love to point out, men every day die for a lie, but men don't die for something they know to be a lie. You're not burned at the stake if you know that what you're saying is not true about Him. You would recant and you would go about your life. But these men were crucified upside down, they were boiled alive, they were sawn asunder, they were beheaded, they were burned, they were fed to wild beasts. And they endured all of that because they knew Jesus is risen. And if He is risen, then the worst that the world can do to you is but take your physical life, and He's already defeated death. So if they martyr you, if they slay you, if they run you from your city and they drag you into a colosseum, if they feed you to wild beasts that devour you, that little moment of pain isn't worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed with within you, in you, in the resurrection. And so they could face all of the hatred this world had to offer because Jesus was risen again. We considered His resurrection and how it proved Scripture to be true. How it infiltrated every message that these people preached publicly. It redefined the day that God was worshipped from the seventh day to the first day, a new beginning, a new day of rest and worship, the Lord's day, the first day of the week, how it changed everything. Today we return to the time of the resurrection of Christ, considering together a simple question that you might have after reading of such a climactic event as Jesus rising from the dead. And that question is, what next? We're used to Hollywood fairy tale endings as Americans, as Westerners. And even before that, many of the fairy tales that we enjoy come from other cultures. And the fairy tale always ends with the great climactic event of the story, the great victory, and it's traditional for those fairy tales, the way they're presented to us today, and they shall all live happily ever after. Now, if you go back and read the original versions of some of those fairy tales, many of them were tragedies. And they don't put those in Disney movies because they don't sell a whole lot of movies when the little mermaid dies at the end. You think, I just invested two hours in this fish, and now she's dead. But the way that we present cartoons and fairy tales, epics and sagas, at the end there's always the great victory, sometimes with tragedy, but they're assumed to go about their lives living happily ever after. As we read, that climactic event, the resurrection of Christ... You almost assume that that's the end of it all. The great victory, the end. They all live happily ever after. This event seems like an ending that would be a fairy tale ending, and yet, that event, rather than being an ending, was a beginning. The beginning of an entire era of human history. The church age, the final era of human history, the final time before Christ returns, as we will talk about today, and destroys this world, what a wonderful thing it might have been for those living that loved Jesus at that time for that to be the end, but Jesus had far more in store for humanity, for the world, for his people. He had people that had not yet been born into the world that he also must save what seemed like the great fairy tale ending is actually just the beginning of an entire era of human history. We'll read first this morning from the book of Acts, chapter 1. And so we'll turn there and consider the ascension of Christ. Last week we talked about the resurrection of Christ. As we read the four gospel accounts, it might be a reasonable conclusion to come to that Jesus is resurrected, He appears a couple of times to the disciples, and He ascends to glory. If all you had was Matthew's gospel, that might be the conclusion that you would come to, and it wouldn't be an unreasonable conclusion. Because Jesus appears to them, He upbraids them for their lack of faith, He commissions them to go and preach His word, He tells them He'll be with them to the end of the world, and He ascends to glory. But as we learn here in the book of Acts, written by the same writer Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke, Jesus spends, as we talked about last week, some 40 days with the disciples. Paul references this in 1 Corinthians 15. Again, he reveals himself to these women, to Cephas, to the brethren, to the eleven, and 500 brethren at once who saw him presumably in Galilee. Jesus, for 40 days, revealed himself over and over again to the disciples. No wonder these men and women went to their death for the faith. What are you talking about? I've seen him alive. I saw his hands. I saw his side. I ate with him. He walked with me on a road to Emmaus. I went to the tomb and it was empty. I turned around and he was standing there. Forty days he spends with them. To me, personally, that's one of the most mysterious time periods in all of the Bible because you know it had to be the grandest time in the lives of those men and women who had walked with him for three and a half years. It had to be the grandest time in the life of his mother who had seen him crucified. And yet, we have hardly anything in Scripture recorded about it. John tells us a little more than the other of the apostles. We haven't an extra chapter after the resurrection of Christ. Most of the other Gospels, the three other Gospel accounts, end with the resurrection, the commission, the ascension. John gives us an entire extra chapter about Peter going fishing, taking the disciples with him. Jesus meets him on the bank. He's got food. Lovest thou me more than these? Yea, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. And it ends with Jesus' instruction to John. And the way some misunderstood that, John sums it up saying if The world couldn't hold the books. It could be written about the things that he did and that he taught. But I've written these things to you that you might believe. Acts chapter 1, the former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. That's referring back to the book of Luke. The former treatise, the book of Luke. Same author. Until the day in which he was taken up, After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. That's the commission. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, the word passion, remember, means suffering, by many infallible proofs being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. Now the promise of the Father, which they have heard of him, is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells the eleven, wait at Jerusalem, because I'm going to pour the Holy Spirit out on you. If I don't go away, I I won't send him. He's the comforter, the paraclete is the Greek word for that, and it's transliterated into English as a theological term. Another comforter who will come. And that word another implies the same exact way that Jesus was with them, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, will be with them. To be very clear, when the Holy Spirit fills them on the day of Pentecost in the next chapter, this is not when they were born again. They were born again as they were following Jesus the entire time. Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, Jesus says to Peter. But my Father which is in heaven, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Christ had been revealed to him from the Father. These men had been born again the entire time they traveled with Christ. They cast out devils through the power of the Spirit. They healed people through the power of the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon them in such a manifest sense that they spoke with other languages, they could heal the sick, they could raise the dead. The Spirit filled them in a very special way on the day of Pentecost. And He tells them, stay in Jerusalem until the promise comes that I've told you about. If you want to read in a A good example of when Jesus told them about that, certainly He must have told them that many times, but in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, the upper room discourse, Jesus, after communion, after washing feet, before leaving and going into the garden, tells them all that was going to happen, including the outpouring of the Holy Spirit when He goes away. And they're confused. Lord, we don't know where you're going. Because He tells him, I'm going to prepare a place for you, We don't know where you're going. How are we supposed to know there, know how to get there? It's a very confusing thing for them then, but after His resurrection, He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Ghost. He opens their mind that they could understand the Scriptures, and then He sends the Holy Spirit in a very personal way on the day of Pentecost. John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Completely immersed, as it were, in the Holy Spirit. Which again is not the new birth, but the filling with the Holy Ghost that the disciples received, the apostles, that enabled them to do such marvels in the world. If we have time, we'll make a comment on the purpose of those marvels from Mark chapter 16. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time... Restore again the kingdom to Israel. It's amazing that prior to the day of Pentecost, these men continually misunderstood and misinterpreted even the role and the nature of the kingdom of heaven in the world. You'd think after sermon, after sermon, after sermon, they would understand that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that it's made of people out of every nation, kindred and tongue, That it doesn't have a physical circumcision like the old covenant nation of Israel, but a spiritual one of the heart, of the spirit and not of the letter. And we're all united as one in Christ among all peoples. And in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, but we're all one in Christ. And yet these men once again ask the question, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? We've been with you three and a half years. We're patiently waiting. When are the Romans going to be run out of town? Still looking for a political solution. I wish that I could say we were any better in 2021. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in His own power. That has nothing to do with you if God decides to do things such as that. What is for you to do is in the next verse. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. This is one variation of what we call in Scripture, what we will consider today, the Great Commission. When Christ commissions His apostles primarily, and through them, the gospel ministry of every age, to go preach and baptize, to make disciples, to spread the gospel through the entire globe. Now, we emphasize to the apostles and through them to the gospel ministry. There's a way that all of us here can be evangelistic, but... The ministry is commanded to go and to teach and to baptize and to teach. We're very clear. We follow the the Scripture, Matthew 28, on that and the traditions that almost universally have been practiced by the church throughout time that the ordinances had a proper administrator, that ministers were to baptize. Not everybody, not anybody, but the ministry. So you have to be an ordained minister to have a valid baptism. That's not saying anything negative about anybody. It's just a, the sake of doing things correctly in Scripture. You think back in the Old Testament, who could offer the sacrifices in the Old Testament? Anybody? No, the priesthood. Who could prophesy in the Old Testament? Anybody? No, people that were filled with the Holy Ghost that God spoke through. So God gives certain tasks and roles, and that's fine and appropriate Minister is one part of the word administrator as we think about administrating the ordinances. Simple ecclesiology that's been practiced by conservative Christian people all through church history. He tells these 11 men, and through them, in a sense, all of us, but especially the ministry, that they will be witnesses of Him and notice the outward expanse of this. First of all, in Jerusalem. That's where this marvelous event happens in the next chapter on the day of Pentecost. When gathered there in Jerusalem for this festival are people, Jews, out of every nation in this region. In fact, he describes them as every nation under heaven in Acts two five. To the known world in that time, you had devout Jews out of all of those nations. There are witnesses, first of all, in Jerusalem, then in all Judea, in the persecution in the days of Saul of Tarsus. The disciples begin to spread. They begin to scatter. As they get scattered abroad, they go everywhere preaching the gospel. As they go everywhere preaching the gospel, converts are made. As converts are made, they begin preaching the gospel And new converts are made. When those new converts are made, they begin preaching the gospel. And so the Word of God begins to go viral to tie in not only modern internet language, but also modern pandemic language. One spreads to three, three spreads to nine, nine spreads to 18 and 36. And the next thing you know, you've got an entire region of people who have been evangelized. And it spreads and it spreads. But then it doesn't just stay there. Because Philip the Evangelist goes up into Samaria. He goes into Samaria and he begins to preach the word in the old former northern kingdom. And as he preaches, the Samaritans begin to hear and the Samaritans repent and the Samaritans are baptized and the apostles come up there to the northern kingdom and in Samaria and they begin to lay hands on people, and they begin to be filled with the Spirit. It continues to grow. In the book of Acts chapter 10, we've got a man named Cornelius, who's a Gentile. He receives the Word. God hears his prayers as he's a godly man. He's a fearer of God. He's a regenerated man, but he doesn't know the truth as it is in Christ through the gospel. God hears his prayer, sends an angel, tells him to send for a man named Peter. He's living with Simon the Tanner. You go down there and you find him, and you bring him, and he'll tell you what you need to do. God gives Peter three visions. Eat things that are unclean. And Peter says, Lord, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And what God said to him was, what I've made clean, don't you dare call common. If I've cleansed it, it's not common happens three times, and as that vision ends, Peter gets a knock on the door, and there are three Gentiles waiting. We want you to bring you down to Cornelius. Cornelius, first of all, falls down and bows before Peter. Peter says, Stand up! I myself am a man. But he tells them that God's taught me not to call anybody common or unclean, that he's cleansed. But in every nation, he that feareth him and works righteousness is accepted with him. Peter baptizes him, and the door to the Gentiles, non-Jews, is opened up. This coincides with God raising up the apostle to the Gentiles, Saul of Tarsus. Saul gets commissioned to go out and minister to these Gentile churches. How ironic is that? The man who grew up as a Pharisee at the feet of Gamaliel with the finest Jewish education at the time, who has a heart for Israel, and yet God sends him to everyone but Israel. Every time he preaches to them, they try to kill him. He's got to run down and hide and they lead him out, lower him out of a window from a wall in a basket so he can escape the first time he's rounded up by those people. He goes and enters into Jerusalem after the events of Acts 20 and Acts 21 and They see him and drag him out and accuse him of bringing Gentiles into the temple and beat him up and they would have killed him if not for the soldiers. That starts all the events later in Acts about Paul appealing to Caesar and as we read the book of Philippians, Paul is incarcerated and at the close of that epistle he says, all that are in Caesar's house salute you. That man got arrested and apparently converted people that were related to Caesar. Caesar. The word is deposited, the gospel is deposited here in Jerusalem and it spreads to Judea. It spreads to Samaria. It begins spreading through Asia and Europe. And here we are in the uttermost parts of the earth, a living fulfillment of the prophecy that Christ gave in Acts 1 and verse 8. Quite literally, the uttermost part of the earth. Now as Jesus speaks these things, you notice in verse 9... While they beheld, they're looking at him. He's talking to them. He was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. They're speaking. Jesus is talking to them. You can imagine three or four, I'm in the back. Wait a minute, clarify that for me. And he starts to float. And he floats up into the air. And he goes up to the clouds, and clouds obscure him where they can't see him, and he's gone. Now, what would you be doing? You know, as weird as it was, think about it in human terms. That was strange. That's different. Never seen that before. We follow him. He heals the sick. He walks on water. He calms the storm. He raises the dead. He gives sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. He cleanses lepers. He straightens out withered limbs. He's crucified. He's buried. He rises again. He just floated up into a cloud. And he's gone. So what are these men doing? Well, notice the next verse while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up. So while Jesus ascends to glory, they're standing there looking up. What? He's gone. He floated to glory. You can imagine they watch him till he... Have you ever watched something get so high that it becomes a speck and then it disappears out of your sight? That distance where something becomes a speck gets shorter and shorter as I get older and older. Someone told me a couple of weeks ago when we were out of town for Rachel's father's funeral that at 40 her eyes just diminished terribly and her doctor said, well, you're 40. A lot of terrible things happen at 40. I turned 40 this year and I can't see. It's bad. I drive at night and I'm like, this is dangerous. They're looking and looking. It gets further and further away, and he disappears. And they just stand there staring into heaven, like, what is going on? Well, an angel appears. And he says, These two men in white apparel, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? Why are you standing there looking up? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. He floated up until he disappeared. One day he is going to appear in the clouds and he's going to descend. How do you know that? Because he rose from the dead and everything he said was true. Again, the resurrection of Christ declares Him to be the Son of God with power, and so everything He said is right and true and good, is the word of the Lord, yea and amen. And vanished out of their sight in the clouds, shall so come again in the clouds, and descend with the voice, with the shout the voice of the archangel, the trump of God shall sound, and he will at that moment raise the dead. He will resurrect all that are dead. Now, Revelation chapter 1 says, Behold, he cometh with clouds. And that is literally John repeating to you through the Holy Spirit, obviously the inspiration of God, what the angels told them, John's witness of that in Acts chapter 1. Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him, and they also that pierced Him. All nations of the earth shall wail because of Him. Even so, amen. Jesus is coming again. Even those who pierced Him shall see Him, and there are people in the world that shall wail because of Him. At the second coming of Christ, there will be people who call upon the rocks and the mountains to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. I used to work in a state park back in college, and that state park had a petting zoo. And I can tell you that at no point in the petting zoo was I afraid of the wrath of a lamb. We had all these little baby goats and these little baby lambs, these baby sheep, and, you know, they would just wander around and make a mess and make noise, but they were the cutest little things that you could imagine. And you'll have people in that day who are hiding from the wrath Not of the lion of the tribe of Judah, as he also is, but the lamb. You see, Jesus is as meek and lowly as a lamb to us. But to his enemies in that day, he will be ferocious. And they will be fleeing from the Lamb of God. Nations shall wail. Those that pierced him shall look upon him. How shall they look upon him when they've been dead for nearly two millennia? Because he will raise the dead. He will raise the dead. Now, in this era of time, we await Jesus' return. And we want to say just a few things about that before looking at what next. What do we do as we wait? The book of John chapter 5, Jesus is speaking of quickening and He's speaking of having life. He talks about the fact that if you hear His word and you believe on Him who sent Him, you have everlasting life. You will not come into condemnation because you are passed from death to life. In other words... Because the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, because the gospel is foolishness to them that perish, if you believe the gospel and you love Jesus, you have passed from death to life. The life that you have enables you to believe. Literally, the belief that you have in him is life. You are connected to the Father through Christ in you, the hope of glory. You are united by him or with him. And Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. That's referring to the new birth. If you believe you have passed from death unto life, you'll never come into condemnation. Your belief is proof of that. The hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, they that hear shall live. You were dead. Christ spoke to your soul. Live and you came to life. You're alive in Christ through Christ commanding you to life. The Scriptures attribute the new birth to the same power that is used in creation and the resurrection at the last day, the voice of the Son of God. And so it takes no less power to bring you from death and sin to life in Christ to vitally save you than it took to create the universe and that it will take to resurrect the dead at the end of time. Now, I don't have that power. You don't have that power. I cannot speak something into being, but God can. And Christ speaks every one of his children into eternal life. But notice what Jesus says in verse 28 Marvel not at this. That is a marvel. It might be old to us because we've heard it all of our lives, but that is a marvel. That God raises those who were dead in trespasses and sins to life in Christ. That's a marvel. Marvel not at this. The hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear His voice. Everyone in every grave. This first resurrection that you've received was the resurrection of your soul and spirit from death and sin. You were born again. You were made a new creature in Christ. He has sent forth the spirit of His Son into your heart, crying, what? Abba, Father. But the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Sometimes the Bible makes generalized statements, sometimes the Bible makes very specific statements. This is a generalized statement. The resurrection summed up in a sentence. And as you know, the resurrection is such a complicated event with so many things happening. Obviously, if you summarize it into one statement, there are things that you can further elaborate on and clarify. You might refer to them as nuances. As such, they that have done good do good. How? Well, if their righteousnesses are as filthy rags and there is none that do with good, no, not one, they do good because Christ has entered into them because by nature there are none good, no, not one. There's none that doeth good, none that seeketh after God, none that feareth God, Romans chapter 3. So if they do good when there is none good, the goodness that they have that is within them had to come from a different source. What is the source of their goodness? The source of their goodness is Christ. Christ has, first of all, given them his goodness, imputing his righteousness to them, and secondly, all the good that they ever did, they did through Christ in them. As Paul said in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Whatsoever is not a faith is of sin. Without faith it is impossible to please Him. Through faith we do anything that is pleasing to God, and we know that faith is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Anything that is done by faith is done by Christ in us. And so they did good because Christ was in them. He's simply giving descriptions of them as people. Now, is that all they did? No, they still had natures like you do, and there's a time in their life when all they did was evil. The next classification, they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation, condemnation as a synonym. They that have done evil refers to people whom all they did in their entire life was evil. We like to, in our post-Christian American relativistic society, think of all men as at least a little good. But you should understand, without Christ, all men are completely depraved. Any goodness we have comes from Him. Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. They that have done evil has reference to people who were only in Adam, people who were only natural men, people who were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Unless we are too high on ourselves thinking of them, that is exactly what we were before Jesus came into our lives. We would be exactly like that. Praise God for His grace and His mercy. But from John 5.29, Jesus is coming again. He will return. In that moment, all that are in the grave shall hear His voice. That tells us, by the way, that the resurrection of the just and the unjust is a simultaneous event. The hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear His voice. Not the hours, not that there's an hour for the just at the beginning of a Season, and then you've got the hour of the unjust at the end of that season. But the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear His voice. When Jesus comes back, there is a resurrection of all people, and then He destroys the world. The day that Jesus comes back is the last day of human history. In the book of Second Peter chapter 3, You might wonder, 2,000 years have gone by. Why has Jesus not come back yet? 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise. What is that promise? That He's going to come again. 2 Peter 3 has to do with the second coming of Christ. He has promised that He will return. He will return. The Holy Scripture has told us He will return. The prophets have told us He will return. The apostles have told us He will return. And Jesus has told us, that He will return. And Peter writes to stir up their minds by way of remembrance in this second epistle. Now, who did he write this second epistle to? The same audience as the first epistle. To whom did he write the first epistle? Well, 1 Peter chapter 1, the elect of God. He addresses them as God's elect. 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise... A day is with with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any of usward should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Because the last child of God in this world that He died for hasn't been born again yet. I've said it a million times. That might be hyperbole. It may not be. If Jesus came back in 1850, none of you would have been born, and so none of you would have been quickened, and so none of you would be with Jesus in glory. He died for you, you personally. And had you never been born, he would not get something that he paid for, something that he took so much joy in having that he endured the cross, despising the shame. And so Jesus will come again. He will return when the last child of God the last heir of promise the last covenant son or daughter has been brought into a changed state of nature that Peter calls there with the word repentance describes there with the word repentance shall all come to repentance now we like to emphasize the fact that after the new birth we are not necessarily super saints we can make shipwreck of our lives. We can destroy ourselves with sin. We can be carnal Christians. We can be babes in Christ that need to grow up. But at the same time, there's a change made in the new birth. And 2 Peter 3 describes that as repentance, the noun referring to the change of our state of being after salvation. In that day, according to 2 Peter chapter 3, just to summarize he destroys the universe with fire. The heavens melt with a fervent heat. The earth and all the works that are therein shall be burnt up. Everything here will be destroyed. Peter makes the point out of that, knowing these things, what manner of men ought you to be? Does that mean that I need to live my life in fear of that day? No, I need to live my life in realization that no matter what pursuit I have down here in the world, as important as it might be to me, it's but trivial. Because Jesus is going to destroy it by fire. Over the last few years, I've been trying to revive the lawn in the front of my yard, and I tried various chemicals, all to no avail. And a good brother here gave me the counsel to, when everything is alive but the Bermuda when it goes dormant to round up everything. And then next year the weeds are dead and the Bermuda comes up and has free reign to take over the yard. Countless hours we men spend in our yards, in our gardens, on our houses. You think about all the things that you do to maintenance your house, and it's fitting, it's proper. You should be a good steward of it because God gave it to you. Every single bit of that is going to be burned up. Every bit of it. Every last element. Every last molecule burned up at the second coming of Christ. When I know that, it makes me take the paint job on my car with a little more of a loose grip. I don't necessarily worry so much about a ping in the side of the wall. I don't worry so much about, you know, I I might need to keep this house looking like it's got a host Queen Elizabeth or something. That's my excuse anyway. It's just going to be burned up with fire. Maybe that's not the best excuse, husbands, when your wife wants you to do something around the house. Well, honey, it's just going to get destroyed anyway. Yeah, well, that day might not be today, so get out there and mow the lawn, buster. Yes, ma'am. So Jesus is coming again. He destroys the world with fire at His second coming. He resurrects all people. His children go to be with Him in glory. The wicked are banished from Him in a prison called the Lake of Fire. Chains of darkness where His weeping and gnashing of teeth. What in the world do we do between His ascension and His second coming? The first thing that I want you to have in mind as we think about What we do now, I've had that thought in mind all week after speaking about His crucifixion and His resurrection, such a climactic event, what do we do now? I imagine you would think anything those men experienced after witnessing the resurrection had to be boring. Wouldn't you imagine? He was crucified, He was buried, but He was resurrected and for 40 days He was with us. Anything seems boring compared to that. Wrong! Wrong! He fills them with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is is as much with them as Jesus was. And He sends them out in the power of the Holy Spirit to spread the gospel through the world. The first thing that we do, and we'll come to that concept that we just presented to you as the last point today, we wait. 1 Thessalonians 1 10, verse 9, they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. I think those two sentences summarized everything I said in the 45 minutes that I've been talking to you today. These people had turned from idols to serve the living God. They are waiting for His Son from heaven, His Son whom God had raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. There is wrath to come, and He has delivered us from it. But what are we to do? Wait for the Son of God to come from heaven. We wait For Christ. Waiting changes your perspective. So my parents live two hours south of here. A good 362 days of the year, I'm not waiting on them to come up and visit me. This past week, my dad came up for a visit. And so we were waiting on him. We cleaned the house. We got things ready. We prepared what we would have for lunch that day. The children are liable to be standing out in the front yard because they know when Paul shows up, so does about 10,000 calories of Mountain Dew and chocolate. They're waiting on Him. We're waiting on Jesus. Let that simple word soak into your mind today. So many times we live as if He's not really coming back right now and so I'm not waiting on Him, maybe one day, but not today. Wait on Him as if you're expecting someone to pull up in the yard. Like my children waiting on the 10,000 calories of Mountain Dew. At the same time, as we wait, we rest. Now this Word rest meant a whole lot to those that had lived under the Mosaic law, who had to keep that meticulous law, who had to bring sacrifice after sacrifice, performance of one feast day after another feast day, all of the animals, all of the blood, all of the meat that was burned, the bread, the birds, the lambs, the bulls, the garments, the days, the things they couldn't touch, the things they couldn't eat, how meticulous was it? In 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul says, Not only do we wait, but as we wait, we rest. Paul writes this to the Thessalonians who were facing martyrdom on a daily basis for their faith. And he tells them that they are persecuted, yes, but it's a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. When will that happen? At His second coming to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do they not obey? Because they don't know God. Certainly they're not going to obey. In fact, the people that Paul is writing of in specific had done everything they could to stamp out the gospel of Christ, martyring God's disciples. And these people... Christ will take vengeance on in flaming fire and they will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and admired in all them that believe in that day. Our testimony among you was believed, as he says. What does he say concerning that reality? Rest with us. Rest in what? In the knowledge of the resurrection. Rest. It changes the way that you view the world around you. Lastly, not only do we wait and not only do we rest, but Jesus left us clear instruction at His departure to work. Now we know scripturally if a man won't work, he also shouldn't eat. We know that the Bible commends work, that we work with our hands to give to the poor. There's a great deal in the Bible said about work, but the work that I want to emphasize right now is the work of the ministry, the work of the gospel, the work of the church. It's usually the most important thing for the children to understand if the parent says, do this as I'm leaving before I return. I can tell you that if I have a list of things that I want the children to do and I say, I'm going to be gone for four or five hours, when I come back, I want this to be done. Now, it may be sweep, it may be mop, it may be do the dishes, it may be clean the countertops, it may be take a magic eraser and go around all the baseboards because y'all seem to want to you know, highlight everything that we have here with spaghetti sauce and mud and dirt and grime and gross. While I'm gone, I want you to get this done. When I leave and give a task, I expect it be done while I'm gone. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gives his... Disciples, a job. Matthew 28, the eleven disciples, again, the apostles primarily are given this commandment. Through them the gospel ministry of every age, and it is the overall work of the church to facilitate this. These eleven men meet in Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth." Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now that first statement and that last statement ought to invigorate us. First of all, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Second of all, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And so He is with us today, and He has all power in heaven and in earth. Who's going to give us the strength to minister and evangelize in this community? The one who has all power in heaven and in earth, who's with us unto the end of the world. Amen. Talk about invigorating. But what does He tell them to do? Go, therefore... And teach. That word teach translates from the same, or from a Greek word that has the same root as the word disciple. And so to teach literally means to make disciples. We are commanded to go into all the world. Now, how did that look like to the first century Christian? Well, Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the earth. And here we are in Madison County, Alabama, in the uttermost parts of the earth, two millennia later, doing our best to make disciples. We go and we teach. We make disciples. When a disciple has been made, now let me be very clear on that. You and I can't make sons. I can preach to someone who's dead in sin. If Jesus doesn't give them life, it's the same as preaching to a corpse. And we've all done funerals. We've all been to funerals. You know that you can... Someone dies, you can beg, you can plead, you can shake them, you can preach to them, you can scream at them. I can take my trumpet and put it to the side of their head and blare at them. They're not going to come back to life because they're dead. By nature, we're dead in sin. Christ must give us life. But when Christ gives someone life, my job is to disciple them, to make them a student, to teach them. I want people to turn from idols to serve the true and living God. And I'm not afraid of using that language. Sometimes hard-shell Baptists will talk in such apologetic terms that they don't want anybody to think that they've turned into some Arminian or something. No, I want you to turn from idols and serve the living God. I'll tell you, seek after him. If happily you might find him, as Paul said in the book of Acts, to the Athenians. I'll tell you to turn from Christ. I want you to turn from Christ, or to Christ. Turn from idols to serve the true and living God. I want to make disciples. When a disciple has been made, the disciple needs to be baptized. And you have those concepts linked in Scripture. If you believe and you love Jesus, He calls upon you to be baptized. And He sent, in this case, the eleven through them, the gospel ministry of every age, to do this work, to baptize and to administer communion. And then, you teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, an ongoing teaching in the life of a child of God, a disciple of Christ, as long as they live in the world. Lastly, Mark chapter 16, Jesus gives various renditions of this. We use Matthew and Mark today. Afterwards, He appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat. This is the close of Mark after the resurrection, before the ascension. He upbraided them for their hardness of heart. Their unbelief, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. Even though you are born again and believe in Christ, you can struggle with unbelief. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. It's not an excuse because he upbraids them, but it is a reality that we contend with. It is the sin which doth so easily beset us, I believe in Hebrews 12. He said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That doesn't mean that we go to all sorts of animals in the animal kingdom, but we preach the word indiscriminately to men. And as 2 Corinthians says, We're the saver of, saver of life unto life and death unto death. To those to whom Christ has given life, we have the smell of life as we preach the gospel to them. Those who are dead in sins, we have the savor, the smell of death as the ministers of Christ. Go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Indiscriminately share the word with all who are around you. Would to God that we had the boldness to do that in our day-to-day lives the way we ought. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned it's commonly believed by some denominations that that places baptism as the prerequisite on salvation. We know that salvation, however, is by grace and not by works. Baptism is a good work. Peter would say in 1 Peter 3, 21, that it's the answer of a good conscience towards the Lord. Baptism is commanded to all whom the Lord our God shall call, Acts chapter 2. What does this statement then mean? First of all... It's a declarative statement of assurance. If you believe, what has happened to you that enabled that belief? Because the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. If you believe, God has quickened you. That's what enabled the belief. And so, when people believe and they follow Him as disciples, what this is is a declarative statement assuring them that they'll be with Him in glory. It's going to be all right. You troubled, trembling child of God. You follow Christ. Everything's going to be okay. It's a statement of assurance, a declarative statement. At the same time, now remember that belief is a byproduct of being born again, and baptism is the outward sign of that inward change. At the same time, baptism and discipleship saves us, from error, as you're discipled and you learn the truth, truth purges out error. Discipleship saves us from fear because I understand my righteousness is Christ's righteousness. I don't worry when I go to bed at night that I haven't joined the right order or prayed the right prayer. Jesus has saved me, so I'm not afraid. It saves me from sinful living, and the destructive consequences of sin in my personal life. Saving in discipleship. It saves me from guilt. It saves me from this untoward generation. Over and over and over, as disciples of Christ, we find salvation. He hath delivered us he doth deliver us, and we trust He will yet deliver us, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians. At the same time, he that believeth not shall be damned. If someone outright hates and rejects Jesus, it speaks very ill about their personal, present spiritual state. That's a very negative fruit that a person bears. What do we do in the meantime? What next? What do we do while we wait? You men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? Between His resurrection and His ascension and His second coming, we spend our lives waiting for Him, resting in Him, as we worship Him in spirit and in truth as disciples of Christ, We go and we make disciples, spreading the world, spreading, filling the world as we spread His gospel throughout the nations of men to His glory, His honor, and His praise. Now, we'll close today by simply saying, if you love Jesus and you feel that He has taken your sins from you, Scripture calls on you to become His disciple. How do you do that? You confess Him before men. You take up your cross. You follow Him in gospel obedience by being baptized in His name. We'll give you an opportunity to come forward and let those wishes be known in just a minute. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much that You have given us something to do as we await Your Son's coming. We know He's coming again. Father, we know He rose again from the dead and ascended to glory, and because of that, He's coming again. And every tongue that mocks and scoffs, Lord, will be silenced. Every wicked devil, Satan himself, all of the wicked of this world that live their lives in hatred to You and hatred and torment of Your people because of their faith in You, we know, Father, that You will cause all of them, every need to bow. Lord, we pray that this sermon, as imperfect as it was to convey such a thought, will be resonating in their minds through this upcoming week. Forgive us, Lord, of our many sins. Help us to preach the gospel to your children in this world. We know, Father, that we are totally powerless to bring them from death unto life. We know that's through the Spirit, and the Spirit, the wind bloweth where it listeth. us. We know, Father, that so is everyone that is born of your Holy Spirit. Praise be thy holy name for quickening your children. You quicken whomsoever you will, as Jesus said in John 5. Father, help us disciple those that are quickened. Give us the spirit to preach, to gather them. We know the fields are wide unto harvest, Father, and if we can't find them, Lord, then send them to us that they might have rest and instruction through the gospel and through your word in your kingdom. In Jesus' name.